0: I don't know the truth! Welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover. Thank you for joining me on the show once again. I want to thank everybody who came out to see me in San Diego this weekend. I got one last stop on my tour for now. I'm sure we're going to add more dates, but... In just a week and a half, I am going to be in Portland, Oregon. If you are in the area, please come out and see me at Helium Comedy Club. I'm doing my brand new hour of stand-up. We are going to have a fantastic time. And by the way, if you want to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash Conover. Just 5 bucks gets you access to ad-free episodes, bonus podcast episodes. You can join our community Discord and our live book club. It is a blast. I hope to see you there. Head to patreon.com slash Adam Conover, and thank you for your support. Now, if you remember, we're doing a special series this month on the challenges facing us and what the fuck we can do about them. We say fuck hopelessness on this show. We're not going to give up. Instead, we're talking to incredible experts about how you, yes, you can make a difference in the biggest challenges we face. And this week, we're talking about the biggest one of all, climate change. Now look, it's easy to feel hopeless about the climate. We know that temperatures are getting hotter year after year, that weather is getting more chaotic and more destructive, and we know that it is all our fault. But all that the governments have done about it is you know, convene conferences, sign non-binding resolutions, while a third of Pakistan floods or the Pacific Northwest erupts in flames. And in the face of a challenge like that, you know, we as individuals often feel powerless. Sure, you can get paper bags instead of plastic, or you can get a better car that you drive two hours to your really far commute to work, but we all know that individual consumer choices aren't gonna add up to that much. And we feel powerless to put in place the large-scale changes that we know we need. So we give up. Right? We say, uh, ah, you know, nothing you can do about the climate. Let's just keep uh, burning fossil fuels, go to the beach and chill out until we die, because there's nothing to be done. Right? Well, no. This is self-defeating and, frankly, planet-defeating logic. The one thing that will guarantee we will never solve climate change is if we all believe it is so impossible that we don't even try. That frame of mind is absolutely wrong, and it's not just morally wrong, it is also factually false. Because the truth is, those who are trying are having success. We are making a difference in the fight against climate change. For instance, The Inflation Reduction Act, a bill that was just passed in the United States, is the largest investment in climate in American history. After decades of inaction, the bill will spend $369 billion to deal with climate change and speed our transition to renewable energy. This massive set of policies and incentives will reduce, by some estimates, our emissions close to 40% from 2005 levels by 2030. This is huge. It's a triumph. But of course, it's also just a start. Incredible challenges remain. But here's the important part. This act didn't just appear out of nowhere. We would never have gotten the IRA without decades of climate activism. Activism that will and must continue pushing governments, companies, and people to make changes to avert and lessen the catastrophes that are already baked in. But the question still remains, what can we do? on an individual level to fight climate change. That's what you wanna know, right? What is there to do besides getting paper bags and taking the bus instead of buying a fancy car? Well, today we have the best guest possible to help us answer this question. He is one of the most important and influential climate activists in the world, and his work stretches back decades. His 1989 book, The End of Nature, was one of the very first to explain climate change and global warming to a general audience. He founded the international climate activism organization 350.org, and he has been instrumental in helping stop pipelines and pushing investors to divest from fossil fuel companies and stop supporting them via their investments. And it's the kind of activism that he has pioneered that brought us to the point of getting the IRA passed in the first place. There is no one better on the planet to help tell us what is currently being done to fight climate change, the progress that we are making, and what you can do to solve the largest problem humanity has ever faced. Please welcome, and it is such an honor to have him, the great writer, activist, and communicator, Bill McKibben. Bill McKibben, thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Well, it's a pleasure to get to be with you.
0: I have been reading your work for so many years, and I really use you as a North Star for my understanding of what is happening in climate policy with the climate generally, because you you know the field better than anyone, and you write about it so compellingly, and you are extremely unsparing in your evaluation of where we are and the challenges that we face. I've read many of your pieces that have frightened me to death. I've read many of your pieces that have made me feel very hopeful. I want to know how are you feeling right now, generally, hopeful or uh, or fearful?
1: Um, you know what? It's stuck in the middle. Um, and not in a not in a bad way. Um, we're in the middle of a race, Adam. Um, you know, it's a race between the. Fast, the, the fast physical deterioration of the planet's systems. I mean, as we talk today, uh, there are 33 million people displaced from their homes in Pakistan because of flooding on a scale that we haven't seen since NOAA. Um, and at the same time, uh, the scientists and engineers have figured out how to provide us with the stuff we need, cheap solar and wind energy, and there's at least some sign that, uh, that movements are finally being able to force politicians to start building it. This Inflation Reduction Act, uh, for whatever reason we're calling it that, the climate bill that came through <laughs> the Congress a couple of weeks ago, that's the first time that Congress has acted on the climate question since the day 34 years ago when Jim Hansen, NASA physicist, explained to the US Senate for the very first time that climate change was a real threat. So now we're in a race. Can we build this stuff fast enough? Can we start dropping the load of CO2 that we're putting into the atmosphere fast enough to catch up with physics? We're obviously going to see a lot of damage. We see a lot of damage already. Can we stop that damage short of the point where it cuts civilization off at the knees? We don't know. Um, and the trick is to go as fast as we possibly can uh, in the hope of averting as much damage as we can.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's it's a great argument for doing as much as we can every moment uh, in order to avert as much disaster as we can. But I mean, man, the, the way you put that, the, the Inflation Reduction Act being the first bill ever out of uh, out of Congress after you know hearing decades and decades of reports <laughs> about what climate change was going to do. Is really really shocking, um, uh, and we've talked on this show before about the history of, of why that is, and and the fossil fuel companies' misinformation campaign and their pushback against climate action. But uh, I, I want to hear from you about the IRA specifically. What do you uh, is is it a good bill in your view? Well,
1: so first, let's begin with the notion that any bill represents some kind of progress. Um, right. Is it and the way any progress
0: I, is good progress.
1: Is it the way I would have written it? No, um, because basically Joe Manchin had to write it, and Joe Manchin took more money from the fossil fuel industry than anybody else in Washington. So what you're seeing in the bill, Adam, is a that's um, a kind of X-ray of where the power balance lies. Now we've spent the last fifteen or twenty years building big movements to demand action on climate change. They've finally gotten big enough and politically potent enough that they can't be ignored any longer by our Mm -hmm. politicians. Joe Biden ran on climate change as one of his two or three signature issues in the last presidential election. At the same time, the fossil fuel industry remains large and powerful, not as large and powerful as it used to be. We've run a divestment campaign. It's turned into the biggest anti-corporate campaign in history, $40 trillion in endowments and portfolios and pension funds have divested from fossil fuel. But they retain significant political power. So that piece of legislation was a negotiation between the climate movement, climate scientists, uh, environmental justice activists on the one hand, and the fossil fuel industry on the other hand. And it was conducted through, you know, Joe Biden and Joe Manchin. <laughs> um, but so so the law is uh, a, a sweeping advance with lots and lots of warts. Um, and, and now the hope is... Basically what it does is funnel a ton of money into clean energy. And the hope is... That, that will continue to drive down the price of clean energy so much and so fast that the bad parts of the bill won't make as much difference. For instance, uh, Joe Manchin made them promise that uh, for every wind or solar permit they granted, they would also offer up for lease some part of the federal public lands for oil and gas drilling. Now, that's an incredibly stupid and dangerous idea. The hope is that the price of Sun and wind power will be so much cheaper that no one will bother to bid on those leases in the years ahead because they won't Uh, be able to make money on them.
0: Isn't it the case that it's uh, I don't really follow it very closely, (laughs) but it's not as though the oil and gas companies are clamoring for this uh, federal land, Is, is it not?
1: You know, some of the some of the recent auctions have shown up with no bidders at all. The Arctic right. National Wildlife Refuge was supposed to be turned into an oil well, despite the fact that it's literally called a wildlife refuge. <laughs> yeah. We've done a good enough job. Everybody, everybody around the country is led by the Gwich'in uh, uh tribe that that lives there had done a good enough job of making this poisonous politically that the banks and the fossil fuel companies just decided not to bid when the time came Mm. now at the moment thanks to vladimir putin and we should probably talk about that the price of oil is high enough that people are making money but an awful lot of investors look at the look look ahead and see that that's probably a temporary blip. In fact, it's one of those blips that may have the seeds of its own undoing. Uh, what do I mean? Well, I mean the price of gas has you know been five bucks a gallon for half the year, which is great in the short term for Exxon. Uh, they're making money hand over fist after not making money for a while, but it probably is the last chance they're going to get to do that because what's the other effect of $5 a gallon gasoline? It's that anyone with a brain is busy Googling, which electric car should I buy? You know? <laughs> um, and, and, and with that goes the customer base for, for, for Exxon. So eh, we're in this period of transition. And the point is we need it to be a very rapid transition. Everybody yeah. knows that 40 or 50 years from now, we're going to run the planet on sun and wind because it's as close to free as we're going to get. The mm-hmm. trouble is, if it takes 40 or 50 years to get there, the planet that we run on sun and wind will be a broken planet. That's why movements have to work so hard to, to catalyze this reaction, to make it happen faster than it otherwise would. And that's what many of us now, that's why we keep ending up in jail and, you know, mounting big campaigns and on and on and on, just in an effort to speed up this transition. So it happens, you know, once we melt the Arctic, no one's got a plan for how you freeze it back up again. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, I want to talk about those movements in just a second, but I just want to ask you one more question about the bill first, because you know, in my reading about it, uh, I understand that there's been a policy shift um, in the in the policies that uh, we we put forward in terms of climate change. That uh, you know, there's the carrot approach and there's the stick approach, and for a number of decades, we were trying to get the stick approach, like a carbon tax or or a carbon cap. Uh, cap and trade, those sorts of policies where, you know, we make it expensive to put carbon into the atmosphere. Instead of it being free, anybody with a smokestack can send carbon up into the air. Instead, we charge you if you do it, and then if you want to be able to do it, you have to pay some money, or maybe you can, there's a credit system where you can trade, et cetera, et cetera. And my understanding is all the experts believed, hey, this is the policy that will make the biggest impact. And unfortunately, it was politically impossible to pass. I believe the Barack, uh, the Barack Obama administration tried to pass it and failed. Um, and so this is now, we've devolved to the carrot approach where uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. we're doing credits and we're doing incentives in order to try to accelerate the development of the clean energy uh, uh, infrastructure in order to make it more competitive with fossil fuels. And I'm just curious in your view, like, is that going to be enough or I guess enough is the wrong word, because even when you do enough, you can do more. But um, is that all right that we have made that transition or do you regret that we were not able to do cap and trade?
1: Well, uh, forget cap and trade. What we probably should have done was just a straightforward series of regulations saying, Here's how much you have to switch if you're a utility every year. You know you have to get five percent more solar and wind and five percent less fossil fuel. And that was actually That's what we did in the, the automaker's bill. with the engine. Yeah, that was actually in the bill, but Manchin took it out about a year ago. Uh, I mean, mm. he's been systematically doing the work of the fossil fuel industry here. And so what's left? Is, you're correct. Is just a big pile of money. Um, politicians are generally happier spending money to let people do something new rather than telling them they gotta stop doing something that they're doing now. That's mm-hmm. more that's more painful. And yeah the hope here is that <laughs> that this will people will stop doing what they're doing now uh because it'll just become so outrageously more expensive than the clean option. And yeah and so that's the hope. Uh you know in in a in, in a rational world, you know, scientists warned us 35 years ago, we would have started almost immediately with some kind of modest price on carbon or something, and the giant super tanker that is our economy, you know, would have steered a couple of degrees to port, uh, and, you know, 35 years later, it would be sailing in a whole different ocean. But that's right. not what we did. Thanks to the um, thanks to the climate denial efforts, thanks to the really big lie that came from the fossil fuel industry, we doubled down. We just went straight ahead, but faster. Human beings have produced more CO two in the thirty five years since we were warned about this than in all of human history beforehand. So. Wow. You know, now we're in a place where we have to move extraordinarily fast. Instead of having four decades, we've got seven or eight years to make huge changes. That will strain our ability, you know, politically to get things done, but also just physically to get things done. You know, that's an extraordinary number of solar panels and air source heat pumps and induction cooktops and electric vehicle chargers and things, among other things the um the estimate is we need a million more electricians than we have in the US uh, <laughs> if you know a young person who wants to make a difference in the world and is also kind of worried about the stability of their economic life you could give them a lot worse advice than train to be an electrician because <laughs> we're going to need an enormous number of them for a very long time and the work they're going to be doing is absolutely critical to making the planet yeah. a habitable place.
0: Yeah, but that's uh, I love the way you put that though because it makes it look like hey this is opportunity. This is opportunity knocking that there's a lot of work to do and guess what we can step up and do it and we can make money doing it too, right? <laughs> right? That's like uh, this is going to be uh, always the biggest- a good incentive
1: this is going to be the biggest economic transition in human history. I mean, we're taking out the heart of our current economy, which is burning stuff, coal, gas, and oil, and replacing it. And that's, you know, just think of the hardware involved. So yes, it's people are going to make money. Now, they're not going to make money. And this is the reason that Exxon et al have opposed it. They're not going to make money on the scale that the oil industry did. Uh, and if you think about it for a little while, you can figure out why. Um, you know, once you put up a solar panel, you know, you have to. Somebody's going to become a billionaire putting up solar panels. People already are. But once you've got a solar panel on your roof, the sun delivers the your energy for free every morning when it rises above the horizon. Um, mm-hmm. That's you know, if you're Exxon, who's profited by having people write you a check every month for a hundred years for their next supply of energy. That's the dumbest business model on earth. And <laughs> that's why they've thrown everything they have for over 30 years into making sure that it gets, you know, that if it ever happens, it happens as slowly and painfully as possible. Um, and, and their ability to politically game the system has, you know, stuck us in the fix we're in right yeah. now, where we see Heat waves, but, and floods, and But fire. Bill, you,
0: I think you, I, I think you underestimate them because they they will figure out how to rip people off on the solar panels. They'll figure out how to make it. You, you lease the solar panel on the roof, and you pay them an installation fee, and then you pay them all other kinds of. There's, you know what I there's mean? There's
1: definitely some of that going on. The, uh, <laughs> the Oklahoma utility last year announced that if you wanted to put a solar panel on the roof, you had to pay them a fifteen hundred dollar. Exit fee to get away from their utility. So it's, there's, there's plenty of that going on, but the basic, the basic truth is that scientists and engineers have lowered the cost of renewable energy 90% over the last decade. We now live on a world where the cheapest way to generate power is to point a sheet of glass at the sun. That's a Hogwarts scale magic. And What it means is that, as I wrote earlier this year in The New Yorker, that that human beings could quite legitimately hope to end our 200,000 year career of setting things on fire sometime in the next decade or two. Like, wow. you know, literally fire made us who we are. Darwin said that language and fire were the two crucial human uh uh, inventions fire let us cook food which in turn allowed our brains to get larger uh fire let us move north away from the equator anthropologists think that the bonds we formed around the campfire at night helped make us a social species 300 years ago when we learned how to burn coal uh you know combustion transformed the planet producing modernity but now the 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 bad effects of that combustion are so enormous that we should be struggling very hard to bring it to an end and instead rely on the fact that the good lord hung a large ball of burning gas 93 million miles <laughs> up in the sky and we know how to make full use of it. it the the need for speed in this transition by the way is not related just to climate change though that is the existential risk that uh, could easily destroy our civilizations. There are also at least two other extremely important reasons for this. The the new data makes clear, there was a big, finally a big study last year by doctors all over the world, makes clear that about one death in five on this planet is the direct result of breathing the combustion byproducts of fossil fuel. People, mostly poor people, end up breathing all those particulates if you live next to the highway or the coal-fired power yeah. plant or whatever it is, and they kill you. One death in five, 9 million people a year. That's more wow. than HIV, AIDS, malaria, tuberculosis, war, terrorism combined. It's way more than COVID. Uh, and it's all unnecessary because the vaccine for dying of particulates in your lungs is called you know electric vehicles and e-bikes yeah. and so on. The other reason that's really come into sharp focus this year is because there's a gruesomely tight link between fossil fuel and autocracy. Uh, you know, we've sort of known this for years. Our biggest oil and gas barons in this country were the Koch brothers, and they used their winnings to, you know, purchase one of our political parties and deform our democracy. We've known that the you know, king of Saudi Arabia gets to cut people's heads off with a sword because everyone depends on his supply of oil. But this year, Putin really made it you know as plain as the nose on your face. I mean, 60 percent, 60 percent of Putin's export earnings that power the Russian economy come from selling oil and gas. Look around your house, Adam try to find some uh, object of Russian manufacture that in a, you know, fit of indignant rage, you could boycott. I, unless you have an old bottle of Stoliknaya someplace at the back of the liquor cabinet, <laughs> I, I wager you cannot find anything made in Russia. All they are is a gas station. And, and they've wow. used that control of oil and gas to intimidate Western Europe for many years. But you know, now now it's going to be a very difficult winter in Europe and it's going to be cold and expensive. But within a year or two, the EU has made the, the strong commitment to moving much more rapidly to renewable energy, not just because of climate reasons, but because they're sick of being under Putin's thumb. Boris Johnson, yeah. of all people, earlier today in the right-wing British tabloids, was boasting about the fact that uh, uh, wind power in the UK is now nine times cheaper than natural gas-fired electricity. Wow. So numbers like that just uh, uh, become hard to beat at a certain point, and and well, hopefully we'll move fast in that direction because it is just tragic to watch, you know and. a a malevolent um, malevolent jerk like Putin able to carry out his fantasies simply because he has a lot of oil money sitting in his pocket.
0: And he's not even the biggest oil producer, he's just one of them
1: Uh, but,
0: uh, well look, we have to take a really
1: quick break, we'll be right
0: back with more Bill McKibben when I want to ask you about the movement that is helping power all of these changes we're seeing we'll be right back with more Bill McKibben So, Bill, we've been talking about the Inflation Reduction Act. You talked about how Joe Manchin was the uh, largest receiver of uh, donations from the fossil fuel industry, and how he, you know, uh, sort of made all these little cuts to the bill and and didn't allow things through. But then, at the end of the day, he signed it. Like <laughs> we thought we were, we thought he wasn't going to, and then he turned around and signed it after all. And I was sitting there going, why? If he was the re- you know receiver of all these money of all this money, did he sign it? Um, And was it because of the movement that has built around, uh, you know, doing something about the climate? Is that what forced his hand?
1: Indirectly anyway. um, One of the goals of movements is to win lots of small battles along the way. So we've fought like hell to beat the Keystone pipeline or to have all these divestment actions or so on and so forth. But important as each of those things were in and of themselves The real payoff comes when taken together, they manage to start shifting the the zeitgeist, I think would be the right word. People's Mm -hmm. sense of what's normal and natural and obvious. And the polling data makes extraordinarily clear that this is what has happened over the last 10 or 15 years. Um, We've reached the point where a vast majority of Americans want action on climate change. And that's not been enough to sway the Republican Party. They remain basically a wholly owned subsidiary of the fossil fuel industry. But but the Democratic Party is now fully engaged at some level in this project. Uh, Biden, to make sure that he picked up Bernie's voters uh, after the 2020 primaries, Biden set up a little committee, uh, uh, and he appointed a couple of his people to it. Um, Gina McCarthy, now the domestic climate czar, and John Kerry, now our climate envoy. And Bernie put a couple of uh, heavy hitters of his own on it, Uh, AOC, Mm -hmm. and uh, a woman named Varshini Prakash, the woman who had first divested UMass Amherst from fossil fuel, and then went on to found the Sunrise Movement that brought us the Green New Deal. Mm-hmm. And, and they hammered out what, you know, basically the, the basic outlines of what two years later would become the Inflation Reduction Act. And Biden knew that his success uh, uh, depended on that, And so he kept just unrelenting pressure on Manchin till finally uh, uh, he got at least some kind of deal. So that shift in the zeitgeist has been a product of extraordinary movement building by millions of people over many years. And the good news is that it's not just happening in this country. It happens all over the world. You know, I I helped start 350.org, which became the first iteration of a global climate movement. We've had... 20,000 demonstrations in every country on earth, except North Korea. Uh, And so there's the same pressure happening in lots and lots and lots of places. And it's beginning to tell finally. It shouldn't have to be this hard. It's stupid that people have to go to jail and march in the streets and things to get our politicians to pay attention to the clear warning of existential peril from scientists. But, you know, it's not the most rational of worlds. So that is what we have to do. And happily, people are doing it and doing it in all kinds of (laughs) fashions. You know, Um, much of the action has come in recent years from young people. Uh, I formed 350.org with seven college students. These divestment campaigners were young. They formed the Sunrise Movement. You know about the remarkable Greta Thunberg of Sweden, and you should. She's one of my favorite people in the world to work with. I adore her. Um, But she would be the first to say, look, there's 10,000 of me around the world, and we have 10 million followers in high school and junior high school. That's how many kids were out on climate strike in September of 2019 before the pandemic hit. And that's fantastic. I I did begin to worry at some point, Adam, that I was hearing too many people say, oh, this is up to the next generation to solve, you know, Uh, which seemed both ignoble and impractical. Um, Young people, for all their energy and ambition and intelligence and idealism, lack the structural power necessary to make these shifts happen in time. Yeah. So we've been formed this last year, this new operation called Third Act, which organizes people over the age of 60 for action. Oh, that's great. Democracy and on climate change. And we've been having lots and lots of fun. Um, I'll tell you just that we were just one of our campaigns is to get the big banks, Wells Fargo, B of A, Citi, and Chase to stop handing over money to the fossil fuel industry for expansion. And so we've been doing these demonstrations outside banks. I was at one Recently, and there was a big crowd of high school kids there because they get this completely and they being somewhat spryer were at the head of the march. But at the back, you know, there was a big, big crowd of people with hairlines like mine marching under a banner that said fossils against fossil fuels. And (laughs) and so, you know, we're we're, going to do what we can to build out as big and broad a coalition as it's possible to have.
0: Wow, that is that is really impressive to see that happen. Um, and I look, one of the things though that bums me out about uh, you know climate activism is I often hear my own peers say, "Well, look, it's it's too late, or there's you know it's such a big problem, there's so little I can do." It it seems like. And often in my darker moments, you know, I think like, hey, there's a lot of things I could be an activist about, but like climate change seems like the one that is the biggest lift where my input will make the smallest difference, you know, um, and how do you overcome that as an organizer?
1: Your intuition is not incorrect. I mean, the problem with climate change is it is very big and we are very small and Really, there is not much that as individuals we can do that will affect the outcome. I am extremely glad that I have solar panels all over my roof and that I've had them for years and that they're connected to an electric vehicle in the garage and, you know, on and on and on. Um, I don't try to fool myself that that's how we're going to solve this in the time that we have. Mm -hmm. So the way to think about it is the most important thing an individual can do is be a little less of an individual
0: and join
1: together with others in movements large enough to have some hope of shifting the basic political or economic ground rules here. And if that happens, then change can come at a pace that might matter. So, uh, you know, it's it's for all sorts of good common sense reasons you want to buy an electric car, but that shouldn't be the main focus of your work. Um, The main focus of your work should be once you've got your electric car or even better yet, your electric bike, uh, you know, riding it to the next meeting uh, of the people who are going to shift the law so that everybody in California or Mm -hmm. Massachusetts or Texas or wherever can have an electric car too.
0: Or driving your old used car to that meeting as well. Like that if you can't fine.
1: afford a car, go
0: to the meeting. <laughs> that's
1: exactly right. That's exactly right. Very well put.
0: <laughs> well, um, uh, look, I want to ask you more about the activism piece of it. But but something that's uh, a framing that you gave to the climate problem years ago that stuck with me forever. I think I read this article 10 years ago um, is I believe it was in The New Yorker. Um, and you wrote about how the amount of oil that is currently in the ground that is owned by fossil fuel companies, or the, the amount of fossil fuel total that they that they own that is in the ground, they have counted it. They uh, you know intend to pump it out and sell it. Um, all of that put together would be enough to you know cause catastrophic amounts of climate change to have us blow past all the different targets that you know the scientists want us to meet and that part of our challenge is a very difficult political one of somehow getting the these giant corporations to leave this resource in the ground when it is already priced into their stock prices, when they've already made okay. revenue projections based on, the, you know, it's sitting in the warehouse on a bunch of pallets ready to go out, and how do we convince them to take a loss on it instead? And that was such a powerful framing that I'm paraphrasing, maybe I've gotten a little bit wrong, but it really stuck with me, and mm-hmm. I'm curious if that's still a framing that you, that you think is apt, and how do you think we do that, or do you think we're on the road to doing that?
1: Well, it is very apt and remains precisely the problem. Um, And it's funny, it took us, me included, much too long to kind of figure out that framing. I mean, I wrote the first book about climate change back in 1989, but it wasn't until 2010 or 2011 when there was a little report from a London think tank that started laying out these numbers that it really, that part of it really began to sink in. The big oil companies and coal companies have... In their reserves, about five times as much carbon as is necessary to take us past the targets that we all agreed to in Paris in 2016. Wow. So, if, I mean, if they carry out their stated business plans, if they do what they've told their shareholders and their banks they plan to do, then there's no drama about how this story comes out. We know the ending. So, our job is to upset that story. Uh, And that's why we launched, you know, Naomi Klein and I read that original little London study. And that was the genesis of what became this vast divestment movement. And, And eventually, I mean, this is where the, you know, the fight will be. Can we keep most of that carbon in the ground? Key to that happening is going to be the, you know, continued fall in the price of renewable energy. Because if, if you can provide uh, uh, electricity or mobility or whatever for half the price, then, the, then no one in their right mind is going to right. be gain up that stuff to, cause you'll just lose money on it. Right. So,
0: that's how you keep it in the warehouse. Cause no one's going to want to buy it because hey, right. this is too
1: expensive. Yeah. Right. And in this case, the warehouse is, you know, uh, uh, well underground. <laughs> yeah. Yes, of course. <laughs> and, 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 and that's why, you know, what became, you know, one of the slogans of this sort of movement over the last decade has literally been keep it in the ground. Yeah. and, and so that's why there was a great deal of pressure on Biden, for instance, to promise that he would stop new leasing on federal lands uh, for oil and gas drilling. Now, I had to go back on that promise to get Joe Manchin to sign on to this inflation reduction act. But the hope is that, as I said before, most of that won't ever get drilled because it won't be economical to do it um yeah, but this this i mean this explains why. The fossil fuel industry pushes so endlessly, so hard, always against climate action, because those reserves are measured in the tens of trillions of dollars. Um, and, And, you know, if we strand those assets, that's money that's never going to go to the CEO of Exxon. So that's the fight.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I think we can acknowledge that there's going to be some loss on the part of the workers who work for those companies, and we're going to want to find all those people new employment. And it reminds me of the tobacco industry in so many ways, because it's like, look, a lot of people make their money in that industry, but we need to eventually agree this is not an industry that should exist at the scale, at least that it did in the 80s. Um, And... You know, we need to, w- unfortunately for all the people who make their living that way, we need to end that industry and, and find uh, or transition that industry. Um, right. And, and, that's,
1: and, and we, yeah. what we can't do is what happened with the tobacco industry, which is just let them move their operations overseas and sell cigarettes to Chinese people instead.
0: Right. Um,
1: because, you know, if you admit it's, you know... <laughs> Climate change is the ultimate secondhand smoke problem. Uh, No matter Mm -hmm. where you put the carbon in the atmosphere, it heats the whole planet. So that's why we have, I mean, they don't call it global warming for nothing. And that's why we organize all over the world. But yes, that's exactly right. Now, the, the economics of it are sound. I mean, you create far more jobs in the course of using and building out renewable energy. Than you did with fossil fuel. Fossil fuel tends to be highly capital intensive and not take much labor, uh, and, and renewable energy is sort of the other way. But that doesn't mean that all, you know, it's exactly the same people who get the jobs. And this is why every plan that Democrats have put forward for decades now to deal with climate change has had lots of money for This transition, you know, for Mm -hmm. retraining people and so on and so forth, and the Republicans never let it pass because they understood politically that they were better off holding coal miners as hostages. um, That that benefited them politically, so that's what they've done. Uh, uh, Now, in that Inflation Reduction Act, there is some money for these transitions and for the communities. You know, if you if you build a. Uh, say, a a big solar array, uh, and you do it, you get a tax credit to begin with now. But if you do it in what's called an energy community, some town in West Virginia, that has had a lot of coal miners thrown out of work, then you get another 10% tax break on top of that. So it should Mm. steer a lot of uh, investment precisely in those directions. People have sure tried.
0: Well, let's ask about, uh, uh, since you mentioned uh, overseas, uh, look, uh, you know, the U.S. and China are always battling for the for the title of the greatest emitter, the dubious record holder, <laughs> uh, and, you know, China is not a country where the sort of, uh, you know, let's say democratic movement tactics that you can use in the United States are necessarily uh, effective, no, and yeah. And obviously China's always used as a bugaboo by, uh, you know, folks on the right in the in the U.S. who want to say, well, why should we, um, you know, st- why should we uh, decarbonize in the U.S.? Because China's just going to keep doing it and then they'll, you know, they'll lap us and, uh, you know, beat right. us in the economy. And, right. And so it's just a terrible you... argument. But what do you think is going to happen in China?
1: Well, so well, let's just talk about what is happening in China. Yeah. Um, um, it, it's true that China is now the world's leading emitter which makes sense because they have most of the world's people you know um, in per capita terms the u.s remains much larger emitter of co2 and in yeah. historical terms china will never catch us for the amount of carbon we've poured into the atmosphere which is really the number that counts because that co2 stays up there for more than a century i mean yeah the stuff that you know i was. Pouring into the atmosphere when I was learning to drive in my Plymouth Fury in suburban America <laughs> in 1974 is still up there heating the planet, you know. Yeah. Um, and and but China uh, uh, understands that they have a serious problem. Uh, China has just come through the probably the most savage heat wave in human history this summer, 80 or 90 wow. days across swaths of land with hundreds of millions of people in them where the temperature was elevated 20, 30, 40 degrees above normal. where it didn't get cool off much at night. I mean just this the Yangtze River dried to a trickle you know. Um, the Chinese have produced far, far, far more renewable energy than anybody else on the planet. They've been putting them up for years at a pace three, four, five, in some cases, 10 times faster than the rest of the world. They developed the manufacturing expertise was one of the things that brought the price down so sharply. So China is probably at this point seeing its peak production of coal fired power uh, and maybe its peak consumption of hydrocarbons and is beginning to come Fairly quickly down the other side, I think. Now, it's going to be a plateau and a kind of bumpy one. And China has lots of other problems. You know, when they get in these um, economic slowdowns, their instinct is always to fire up the coal fired power plants and build some more infrastructure just to put people to work. But the trend seems pretty clear. Probably the most interesting case at the moment is not China, but India. Uh, And India's because it's about 10 or 15 years behind China in that kind of energy curve. And it really could be, given the changing economics of renewable power, the first big country to skip at least some of the fossil fuel uh, Mm. uh, era in its industrialization. They have their own political pressures. I mean, uh, uh, Modi, who's a jerk, um, um, ran for president, literally campaigning via the private jet of the biggest coal company in India. Wow. But they also have countervailing political pressures. Air pollution in China is now, and India is now worse than China, the worst in the yeah, world. Yeah, it's
0: terrible there.
1: And and so, the, you know, I think we're going to see in cities like Delhi, a super rapid conversion to electric vehicles, electric scooters, on and on and on, just because... I mean, I, I mean I, the last time I, I mean, I love India. Uh, it's one of my favorite countries on earth. But the last time I was in Delhi, I just sort of hunkered down in the hotel room. Um, it just yeah. hurt too much to go outside and walk I, around. I,
0: I've been there. You feel it on day one. You know, it felt like uh, when, when we had fires in Southern California and you would feel it at the end of the day, you know, the soot in your, in nope. your lungs. That is what it feels like to be in, in Mumbai, at least where I was. Forest it's, fire uh, it,
1: all day, every day year-round yeah. uh, they, and so it'd be than, a
0: huge improvement in quality of life uh oh, if if they were to make that conversion i mean
1: through the last numbers i saw were from three or four years ago but of the five million children in the delhi area two and a half million had uh, uh deep lung damage just from breathing the air wow so the, i mean and it these would, are the when we talk about you know one death in five around the planet being the result of breathing the combustion byproducts of fossil fuel, it's places like Mumbai that we're talking about. Uh.
0: And uh, but it would make such a difference for India to leapfrog in that way because you hear this argument from you know developing countries. Well, hold on a second. Why should we be deprived of all of the prosperity and you know uh, better lives that uh, you know the people have had in the U.S. But if you can have an even better, better life and even more prosperity with solar and, and electricity rather than fossil fuels, if your quality of life is even better, if India can prove that, then that's a huge. Uh, you know, model for the rest of the world.
1: That's right. And it's not like anybody in you know India or Africa is like saying we must have landline phones because you had them in the West. You know? <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, okay. So we got cell phones. That was pretty smart. Right.
0: So maybe they'll skip cold too. Well, we have to take one more super quick break and then when we come back, I want to ask you about what we individually can do to help solve climate change. We'll be right back with more Bill McKibben. Okay, we're back with Bill McKibben. We only have a few minutes left, so I want to make use of them. Uh, one of the things that really strikes me about these movements around climate change is that they are not the biggest social movements in the country. You know, the the, the protest after George Floyd's murder were by, you know, some measures, the largest protests in American history. Um, the, you know, when when the climate folks have a march, it is not quite as big, you know. Um, when the Sunrise Movement people took over Nancy Pelosi's office, that was what, a, you know, two dozen kids maybe. And yet, the Results seem like they've been really large. Is it really the case that you know? Uh, 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 it seems like we have a lot of ind- individual power in this movement. That um, you know, a well, small number of people can make a big change here. It's
1: not that small a number of people. I mean, I you know, the last round of big climate strikes before uh, the pandemic hit. I mean, I was in the down in the Battery in New York with Greta Thunberg, and there were three hundred thousand people. Uh, spread out across lower Manhattan, protesting. Wow. Um, okay. You know, uh, we've, we've done these divestment campaigns at thousands, literally thousands of universities, churches, uh, places across America. So people have scattered out to figure out how to take on uh, uh, the oil industry in a thousand different locations. Now we're doing it with banks and people could really help here. Um we've got this pledge going that you can find at thirdact.org and you can sign up even if you're not 60 and it won't turn you into an old person simply because you <laughs> signed up. Um, um, um pledging to cut up their credit cards from Chase City Wells B of A uh next spring if these guys haven't made serious progress. Um and and we're gonna do it in style, you know, the day that we do it. Uh, there's gonna be people, you know, uh, doing down in scuba gear underwater on the dying coral reefs and up against the, you know, fire stars of California and, and, but also at the electric battery factories and EV dealerships and things. But we're going to try and really change the zeitgeist here once more. And people of all ages are joining in and it's, it's, it's starting to work um, um, powerfully. Partly it's starting to work powerfully because we've got new data about it and the numbers are really astonishing. There's a new report that came out in March that I wrote about in The New Yorker uh, that finally managed to quantify just how much carbon you produce just storing your money in the American banking system. If, mm. you, make 120, if you have $125,000 in the bank, it's probably producing more carbon because it's being lent out for pipelines and things than all the cooking, heating, driving, flying, cooling that you do in the course of the year. We wow. looked at big companies like these big tech companies that have all pledged to go net zero. Google's emissions went up 111% when you counted in the cash they had on hand. Netflix's cash in the bank produces more carbon than all the streaming of every, you know, uh, baking program uh, and and whatever else they've got on every night in every living room across the world. Amazon produces more carbon from its cash on hand than from all the warehouses and delivery vans that it owns. So this is a really powerful pinch point. For going after this, uh, uh, the fossil fuel industry. And it's going to be take a couple of years to do it, but it's starting to uh, um, wind out now. And we really need people joining in. This is an easy way to really maximize your leverage here.
0: Yeah. And these are companies that, that are responsive to public pressure on issues like this. You know, yes, a company but don't like try Netflix to, or a Google.
1: Don't, yes, the banks in particular. Don't try to do it by yourself, though, because unless you're very, very wealthy indeed, it's possible that Chase might not notice you were cutting up your credit card. Um, (laughs) um, That's why we're going to do it all at once uh, uh, and in dramatic ways that will bring this message home. And that's, you know, that's the kind of thing that movements are good at. That's why we set them up.
0: So, uh, that's at thirdact.org. People can sign up for that pledge, but I think people also feel, and I know I feel this way that when I sign up for a pledge, I'm like, okay, that's, that's a nice way for me to get on a mailing list and for me to do this action later on when it comes on, right? When it, when it, when it actually happens, but what do I do to actually join the movement myself? If I want so here's, to, so here's know, the
1: next part. I mean, yeah. you know, as we set up is we're we're setting up chapters of Third Act. and for younger people, there's chapters of three fifty dot org and the Sunrise movement. And every day, you know we're busy like finding the state treasurers and city treasurers in blue parts of the country and saying, look, you've you know here, Mr. Comptroller for New York City, you've got two hundred and fifty billion dollars in the bank. You've got to start putting some pressure on Chase and City now. And that that's work that we're used to doing in the kind of divestment campaigns and things. And and very, very powerful. But it takes lots of people doing it in order to make it work. I mean, for the next few months, you know, we're we're in a we're an even numbered year and it's autumn. So for the next couple of months, your biggest leverage point is probably politics. You know, I mean, if we'd had 52 Democratic senators, then we would have ended up with a good, really good climate bill, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so there's work to be done in this state and city level as elections approach. But don't be gulled into thinking that elections are the main part of politics. They're only one part of it. Uh, and the day after election day and the week after and the month after are just as important parts of the political calendar. In general, we've got two levers to pull big enough to be worth pulling. One of them's marked politics. The other one's marked money. So think of mm. them as Washington and Wall Street. These mm. are the power centers big enough to make a difference that might actually show up in the CO2 level in the atmosphere, the temperature on the earth, the height of the seas. So those are the places where we've got to really pull, but it only works if we do it en masse. That means organizing. That means movement building.
0: That's incredible. And there's so much that can be done locally. I mean, talking about the changes that we can make at the city level or the county level in our transportation system or, I mean, like, so we have a local chapter of Sunrise Movement here in Los Angeles, and I'm not a member, although I often feel I should start going to meetings. I do follow what they do. And, you know, there's uh, where I live in Los Angeles. There is oil drilling or oil yes. p- uh, pumping, actually, that we've, happens just literally in the city that these folks are trying to get stopped.
1: We have. I think that that's a, a case that we've basically won. Um, A big campaigning over the last few years with wonderful people around California and the environmental justice movement in the forefront. And I think that Gavin Newsom has finally uh, announced that there won't be new oil drilling within 2,500 feet of people's homes or schools which is a you would think would not be something you'd have to fight this hard to get. No, the, but,
0: the governor says good news. No one's gonna. I finally decided no one's gonna drill an oil well within twenty five hundred feet of on your. the playground, home.
1: yes. A, yeah.
0: Okay. Small steps. Small steps, Bill. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> but a good so, step. A good step. So there's lots more to be done. Just like it.
0: <laughs> well and and uh, thank you for giving us a vision of how we can be a part of it uh, you know sh- just showing up to those local meetings the sunrise movement or your local 350 chapter uh is it uh, can be really meaningful
1: absolutely man i mean look this is a uh, this this what we're in right now climate change is a test of whether or not the um the big brain was a good evolutionary adaptation or not, it can obviously get us in a lot of trouble. And the question is now, can it get us out? And I think actually the answer will be less about the big brain than about the hopefully big hearts that those brains are attached to. If we can remind ourselves that we have to be watching out for each other, um, then we've got a chance here. Yes. Thank
0: you so much, Bill. That, that's a wonderful message to end on. I, I thank you so much for coming. And by the way, just, just tell us, you have a new book out, please just give us the synopsis and <laughs> the title, please. I, 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 I regret I didn't make you plug it earlier.
1: It's called the flag, the cross, the station wagon, a graying American looks back at his suburban boyhood and wonders what the hell happened. Uh, <laughs> it's my attempt to make a little bit of sense of the, crazy America into which we've stumbled and to suggest that there might be some ways that working together, we could stumble our way back out to something that looks a little more coherent than the mess we're in right now.
0: Oh, that sounds really beautiful. And of course you can get it at our special bookshop, factuallypod.com slash books. Bill McKibben, thank you so much for being with us. This Adam, has been a pleasure. Thank you. A real pleasure, man. Well, thank you once again to Bill McKibben for coming on the show. If you want to check out his books, head to factuallypod.com slash books. That's factuallypod.com slash books. I want to thank Bill for coming on the show, and I want to thank everybody who supports this show at the $15 a month level on Patreon. That's Adrian, Alexei Batilov, Alison Liparado, Alan Liska, Ann Slagle, Antonio L. B. Aurelio Jimenez, Beth Brevik, Camus and Lego, Charles Anderson, Chase Thompson Ba, Chris Staley, Courtney Henderson, David Condry, David Conover, Drill Bill, Dude with Games, Ethan Jennings, Hillary Wolken, Jim Shelton, Julia Russell, Kelly Casey, Kelly Lucas, Lacey Tyganoff, Lisa Matulis, Mark Long, Miles Gillingsrud, Mom Named Gwen, Mrs. King Coke, Nicholas Morris, Nikki Batelli, Nuyigik Ipaluk, Paul Mauk, Paul. Paul Schmidt, Rachel Nieto, Richard Watkins, Robin Madison, Ryan Shelby, Samantha Schultz, Sam Ogden, Spencer Campbell, Susan E. Fisher, and Whiskey Nerd 88 If you want to join them, head to patreon.com slash AdamConover. And of course, I have to thank our engineer, Kyle McGraw, our producer, Sam Raubman, the fine folks at Falcon Northwest, for building me the incredible custom gaming PC. I'm recording this very episode for you on. You can find me online at adamconover.net, where you can find all my tour dates, or at AdamConover, wherever you get your social media. I am clearly out of breath. So we will see you next week on Factually. Thank you so much for listening.
1: A A podcast network.